You know, Jay, it's still weird to me that the Hellfire Club funded the Sentinels. I mean, they're mutants. Well, that iteration of the Hellfire Club is mutants. They haven't always been. I mean, it was all humans until Sebastian Shaw and Emma Frost murdered Edward Buckman in Paris Seville. I know all the Inner Circle titles are legacies, but Emma Frost is just so definitively the White Queen that I always forget there have been others. Sure, uh, Benazir Carr, Satire 9, Jean Grey. Wasn't Jean the Black Queen? Also, I thought that whole arc was just Phoenix pretending to be Jean. Oh, in the present, sure. But you know how Mastermind made Jean believe she was having flashbacks to some ancestor of hers? Yeah? Turns out that ancestor actually existed, and that ancestral Jean Grey was, in fact, White Queen of the Hellfire Club. Did she also fund killer robots? Or, I don't know, automatons? No, no, she tricked one of Sebastian Shaw's ancestors into marrying one of Warren Worthington's ancestors. Why'd she do that? Well, as a means of spying on one of Steve Rogers' ancestors and Elsa Bloodstone's dad so that the Hellfire Club could- Take over the world? Stop the American Revolution. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 419 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And it brings me great pleasure to then follow that up with, and welcome to whatever the hell this is. Yeah, um, so we're still in Larry Hama's run on Generation X, and, um, boy is it a time. It is, it is all over the place. Uh, listeners, you may recall that I think when Al Kennedy and I covered the first issue of that run, we were lukewarm on it, but then Jay and I liked the last story we covered. And then there's this, and I don't even know what I think about this. It is bonkers. Choices are made. Comics are created. Um, and I suppose we should give some background as to Generation X, since it's been a while since we checked in with them. So Generation X, the current generation of X-teens, uh, is currently being written, like we said, by Larry Hama, and their lives are a study in extremes. Are they millennials by this point? Maybe, maybe. We're like geriatric millennials. Are we now the same generation as Generation X? How do you throw the letter X into the word millennial? Violently and awkwardly. Milexneal. God, that's horrible. I feel like it's, it's, they, they would manage to do it if it were the 10th in a franchise. Yeah, okay, okay, this makes sense. Anyway, on the one hand, Generation X is leading mundane lives settling into Snow Valley, Massachusetts, which of course is the location of the new Xavier School. They're dealing with bullies and local restaurant options while tolerating their strict headmasters Banshee and Emma Frost. On the other hand, they've also been traveling across dimensions with pukas and snarks and into the mines of Moria and the citadel of the Universal Amalgamator, and you know, merging and separating and, and stuff. As one does. And it was in that last location where longtime Generation X villain M-Plate took a few of our heroes. And in the process, merged, like you alluded to, Jay, with young twin girls Nicole and Claudette St. Croix, who, it turns out, had long ago themselves merged into an older teen named Monet, who had been a member of the team since the very first issue, hiding her true nature behind a mask of arrogant perfection. While at the Universal Amalgamator, the team had rescued a young woman named Gaia who'd been chained up in the Citadel for millennia. They also managed to rescue the twins. Everyone headed happily back home. 
Unfortunately, home wasn't much kinder, as two town bullies beat team member Sink nearly to death, and then left him for dead. Though it's not entirely relevant to this bit of background, I feel the need to include that the bullies' names were Dorian and Weasel. Yeah, and like, they're, they're kind of racist and shitty, uh, so even though they're used as comic relief, they're actually just terrible. Indeed. That brings us to Generation X, number 40, Pride and Penance. Written by Larry Hama, penciled by Terry Dodson, inked by Rachel Dodson, colored by Felix Serrano, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Liz Agrafiatis. So, it's going to be time for a lot of exposition, but we start at Mercy General Hospital, where Sink is being treated after, you know, the uh, severe beating and stuff. And I was thinking, at this hospital, it would be awesome if Cecilia Reyes showed up. Um, didn't she work for a different Mercy Hospital? Yeah, that's what confused me, because she works for our Mother of Mercy Hospital, but this is Mercy General Hospital, uh, and her hospital's in the Bronx, and this is in Snow Valley. There's a lot of Mercy in hospitals, apparently. That's why they're so heavy. (laughs) Nice. It is, that said, easy to forget that this is the X-School book that's not set in New York. Like, I'm so used to all of the X-Books being in New York, and it's really only in Larry Hama's run here, which is still very new, like Larry Hama just took over a handful of issues ago, that we start actually seeing Snow Valley as a real setting. Like, I never got a good feel for it in previous Gen X runs. So something I really appreciate about Larry Hama is he does medical research. He loves his specifics, and he will do his homework about them. So we get here a name drop of the Glasgow Coma Scale, which is absolutely a real thing. The prognosis for Sink on said scale is guarded. And one of the the side effects not accounted for on the Glasgow Coma Scale is that Sink's powers are running out of control while he's comatose. Um, When Emma shows up, he sinks with her and stuff starts flying around the room because, if you'll recall in this Generation X run, people have a historically hard time distinguishing between telepathy, Emma's actual power, and telekinesis. It's really weird, yeah. Like, Emma has been exclusively a telepath, historically. Like, that is what she does. She can get into people's minds and do stuff to those minds. But, yeah, a number of times, in especially Larry Hama's run, she's also randomly telekinetic. When her powers go out of control, stuff physically happens. We see that with other telepaths as well. And I kind of get it. I mean, those are both under the umbrella of psychic powers. Like, that's how sort of the world in general sees those powers as being related. And, of course, some of the most famous Marvel characters who have one of those powers also have the other. Jean Grey, of course, being the most well-known later on Psylocke when her powers expand. But on the other hand, some of the best-known Marvel characters with one of those powers don't have the other, case in point being, for example, Professor Xavier, Emma Frost, Psylocke initially, most telepaths in the Marvel Universe. And I, I question the idea that they're easily conflatable because they're both psychic powers. I mean, for instance, I, uh, power lifting and high jumping are both physical abilities, but they're, they're not really interchangeable. Although imagine if you could do both at the same time. Like, you power lift so hard that you just just jump into the sky, like, 40 feet. That's sort of how Thor's powers work. It is, you're right, he just throws his hammer and he hangs on. That's one of my favorite bits about the Marvel Universe, right there. Anyway, point being, Sink's powers, as his name would suggest, are of course that he can synchronize with the powers of people around him. Thus, him picking up on Emma Frost's powers, but not being able to control them because of, you know, the coma. Thankfully, Claudette is unaffected, and she is able to calm Sink down through touch, at which point he sinks with the twins. That somehow wakes him up just in time for Chief Othier to bring in Dorian and Weasel to the hospital room, because 
that's a great idea to, you know, drag in the people who just, just assaulted the person who's in the hospital. Or, sorry, sorry, not the, the assailants. Let me turn it over to Chief Athier, who I'm sure can phrase this much more um, formally than I could. These two miscreants did the downtown stomp all over your head. It's good to see that you're up and around, son. I was just bringing Dorian and Weasel around to rub their noses in their dirty work. What the fuck, man? Do you remember how we used to watch The X-Files and we decided that John Doggett was the only character on the entire show that should be allowed to have a badge or a gun? Yes. Yeah, Chief OTA probably shouldn't be. Absolutely not. Anyway, Sink is, like, super calm about it, and he's like, no, 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 they didn't attack me, it was just a misunderstanding, it's fine. Like, he's incredibly chill. And this kind of brings to mind something about Sink in this book, period, not just in Hama's run, which is that I don't really know him very well. All the other characters have such well-defined personalities, and Sink doesn't. My headcanon for that has always been that, well, his powers are all about fitting in with whoever's around him, so maybe that's his personality as well. I do like it when powers and personality intersect. But unfortunately, on the page, that can just read as him being a generally agreeable but very bland dude. Yeah, and that continues to be a problem here, when we never really get his motivation for lying about the attack. Maybe we do later? I don't know, I'm not too familiar with this era. All of that said, Sink is currently, in modern continuity in 2023, a member of the X-Men, and is so much more interesting than I think he has ever been. He's been through some really interesting stuff, I won't go into detail in case people are still catching up on recent stuff, but uh, I really like the way he's being handled right now. Good. So, Sink synchronized with Claudette, with the twins in general, when they helped break him out of his coma through their ill-defined powers— And that means he knows their backstory, their very confusing backstory. Because remember, M, Monet Saint-Croix, was a founding member of Gen X, and during Operation Zero Tolerance, there was a big explosion, and suddenly, instead of M being present, there were two little twin girls. And nobody really knows what's going on with that. What we're going to find out here is that there is... Monet, who is Nicole and Claudette combined, but there is also an entirely separate Monet who is just one person. Oh boy, and some of this was stuff intended by Scott Lobdell, the original creator of Monet, along with Chris Pichello, the artist. He definitely always intended M to really be a couple of little girls merged into one teenager that they were pretending to be. Standing on each other's shoulders in a skin suit to get into an R-rated movie, as it were. Like you do. I kind of wish they had instead just worn like a big mustache, and they're like, no, we're Monet. See the mustache? We're a grown-up. Sort of the Vincent adult man of Generation X. Very much so, yes. But this issue is going to be all about exposition, and we in fact get the whole flashbacky backstory. So, some undefined amount of time ago, I get the impression it was at least a couple years, in Monaco, where Emma's from, the twins themselves and the real Monet, their older sister, lived together in a big house— And things were going great until their brother, who we the readers know is the energy vampire M-plate, really scary-looking evil dude, until he came to visit to offer Monet the chance to rule by his side over another dimension that he found. And M-plate is, by this time already, not looking so great. Um, He's got his gray skin and his red eyes and his clawed fingers, and he he has already staked out his signature leather outfit covered in belts, And Monet, fashion plate that she is, is absolutely unimpressed by his offer. You're asking me to give up all this so I can lord it over freaks and geeks in another dimension. 
And then you expect me to come back here looking like you and have all of our friends on the Côte d'Azur laugh up the sleeves of their Armanis and Versaces. Très drôle, mon frère. It is to laugh. So, in vengeance for rejecting him, he transforms her into the voiceless, razor-sharp, red-skinned penance. So there we go. Penance, the unspeaking, mysterious, razor-sharp red girl who's been with Generation X since number one, that is the form of the real Monet. She has, in fact, been around the team the entire time, but nobody knew. So the Monet that the team thought was Monet was Monet's sisters, and then Penance was actual Monet. Is everyone following? I'm only kind of following. I'm following to what extent there's following to be followed. So the twins interrupted this confrontation, and Claudette um, drew a chalk circle around Emplate to send him away, which is a thing she can do, I guess. But Penance jumped in after him since only Emplate could change her back. And that makes sense because Penance, of course, got portaled into Generation X number one from Parts Unknown. We later found out that she had escaped Emplate. So apparently after a while she decided that maybe he wasn't going to change her back and she should just get the hell out of there. The thing is, the twins didn't know Penance was really Monet. They weren't there for the transformation. All they saw was their brother run away, some weird monster follow him, and their sister definitely not be around. So they panicked. And as two little girls with ill-defined but very expansive powers, they came up with a fix to avoid breaking their father's heart with the news of his missing older daughter. So they merged into a copy of Monet so that no one would know she was gone. And that's how they've been pretty much ever since. Now, I don't remember if this has been addressed before, but that's not a fix, kids. Like, yeah, your dad won't be sad that his older daughter is missing, but he'll probably be pretty sad that his other daughters are missing. I like the idea that they're, like, perpetually switching back and forth sitcom style. Oh, yeah, like one of those episodes where somebody's on two dates and they wear two different outfits and then they start mixing up the outfits? Exactly. <laughs> nice. So the twins have been split since the end of Gen X 31. That was nine issues ago. And this mystery has been hanging in the air since then. But remember, the other mystery of who Penance is and of what the deal with M was, that's been in the air since number freaking one. This entire series. We've talked about how Generation X is sort of a slow-paced book. And in terms of mysteries being unveiled, it very much is. Yeah, when we look at the issue numbers, we're talking about a buildup of around three and a half years. How do we feel about that? That's a long time, but does it work for this book or does it not work? I think it's fine because the plot progresses in other ways and there are other arcs that finish and continue on. The fact that there's a long burn story also going on in the background doesn't detract from that. Um, and it's there kind of as a reward for readers who've stuck through the whole thing. Yeah, I agree. That part doesn't bother me. Like, I have my objections to, to the different eras of Generation X, but, like, that's not one of them. So, there we go. Mystery solved. The exposition has been dumped, and now the plot can progress. We should say, also, you mentioned that the twins didn't know at first that Penance was Monet. The way they've learned that was um, via merging with Emplate a while ago in the whole Universal Amalgamator arc. Which was pretty recent, so they've just been sort of sitting on that for a while, and now that having happened, this story being told and everybody knowing what's up, they decide they're going to fix it. So they swap back, basically. 
That means the real M is no longer Penance, she just shows up as herself, and the twins are now trapped together in the Penance form. So M is really M, the twins are now Penance, and that's going to be our status quo for a long-ass time. Meanwhile, a bunch of lizard people in a spaceship are teleport-boarded by a white-skinned lady in a strappy leather science fiction swimsuit with a fur-lined cloak. I really feel like so many bits of this book you could transition into with the traditional Monty Python and now for something completely different. Oh yes, yes indeed. But uh, yeah, this lady is going to be a weirdly big deal for a few issues. Uh, she is Bianca La Neige. So Neige is French for snow, I think. And Bianca sounds a lot like various languages word for white. Uh, so yeah, she's basically Snow White, and sure enough, she uses her undefined powers to transform these cockroach people, cockroach lizard, whatever they are people, into seven dwarves. Seven dwarves with some uh, somewhat off-brand names. That's right, we've got warpy, stinky, spiky, winty, greasy, brainy, and blurry. Jay, do you remember the theme park in Portland, Oregon, or a little bit outside it, the Enchanted Forest? God, yes. So, listeners, we've talked about this occasionally, but the Enchanted Forest is... Amazing. It's, it is amazing. It's this sort of homegrown theme park. Basically, some dude decades ago was like, Disney, huh? I bet I could do that. And um, did his best. It is a little less uh, polished and also uh, really skirts the line of copyright infringement. So there are seven dwarves in the Snow White area, but they also have different names. I specifically remember Wheezy and Lumpy. None of them come close in quality to Blurry, though. That is that is the, my very, very favorite one of the names. Blurry the Dwarf. So, um, yes, Bianca Laneige and her cockroach lizard aliens turned into dwarves with weird names are now heading in their spaceship to uh, Snow Valley, Massachusetts, to get revenge on Emma Frost for something we'll learn about later. Okay, so, just to recap, we've learned all about this simmering mystery that's been going on in Generation X for the entire series and has now been retconned into something perhaps unnecessarily complicated, and an evil Snow White from space just showed up. Uh, you forgot to mention the body swaps that were used to resolve the retcon based on body swaps, but, um, yeah, that that's pretty much the long and short of it. Well, let us wobble from there to Generation X number 41, Massachusetts Chainsaw Massacre, written by Larry Hama, penciled by Ale Garza, inked by Cabin Boy, colored by Felix Serrano, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft, and once again, Liz Agrafiatis. So this is kind of weird. It's, it's a fill-in issue. Like, nothing really happens with a general plot here. Which is kind of weird, because, like, a lot of big stuff just happened that should be addressed, but oh well. But it's not a fill-in writer. It's just Larry Hama doing a kind of one-off, and now for something completely different, kind of issue. There is a fill-in artist, though, Ale Garza, and Ale Garza's style is great. The characters have such distinct faces and such distinct outfits. I especially like Husk's freckles that are so lovingly detailed, and the fact that Penance over her razor-sharp body and, like, strappy black leather body sheath so she doesn't cut things is wearing like pajama pants and a tank top Aww. it's very charming so this is an issue in the grand tradition of new mutants number 21 that's right the kids are throwing a slumber party oh don't don't compare any issue to new mutants 21 that's just mean nothing will ever live up yeah i mean it is however another teen team throwing a slumber party issue i'm not comparing them i'm simply saying that they're working from the same premise fair fair and, uh, yeah, this party includes nail painting, including Jubilee painting Penance's claws, which, again, is adorable, and, uh, renting R-rated movies. The girls are annoyed that there aren't girl movies there, but that's weird. Like, not to gender stereotype, but I'm just saying, of the people in my life I know who really like slasher movies, they're almost entirely women. Yeah, likewise. Huh. Strange. 
things also really seem surprisingly normal here, given, again, that the entire nature of M and the twins was just revealed. The real M showed up and is now, like, talking to everyone around her for the first time ever, and two little girls are trapped in a monster body. Like, it's sort of offhandedly referenced, but nobody really seems to care. And, like, the new Monet, the real Monet that we've never actually technically seen before, is exactly like the previous Monet, so she's got the exact same dynamic with everybody. It is bizarre, like, how much no one seems to have noticed this massive shift in the status quo. It is really, really peculiar, and you can sort of no-prize it by saying, well, she's been around the team for a long time as Penance, so she's familiar with the characters and has has established, you know, judgments about them and, and sort of imaginary dynamics with them, but it still doesn't make a ton of sense. Yeah, you'd think everyone would be a little bit freaked out, especially Monet herself. She was trapped in a monster body in another dimension by her evil brother for, like, a really long time. That would fuck you up a little, right? She's extremely resilient. She's like Gaia. Oh, okay, yes. Uh, the universal amalgamator lady who was chained up for, like, thousands of years in another dimension that we talked about recently. We'll, we'll talk about her again very soon, actually. Yeah, if there's anything we've learned from Larry Hama's run, it's that being stuck in another dimension for a really long time is, is no big deal. No big deal. It makes me uh, wonder if something's wrong with Rachel Summers that she started to uh, get a little upset when she was lost in the time stream for thousands of years. Well, she wasn't in a dimension. That, that might have been the problem. Oh, okay, so as long as you're in a dimension of some sort, then meh, you know, you can just think about, like, fun stuff. Think about your favorite episode of, say, The X-Files, with John Doggett in it. I mean, Bianca will clearly turn out to feel otherwise, but she, after all, is a villain and so has different standards for these things. There's so much getting stuck in other dimensions in Generation X. Like, it's almost like Claremont with body swaps or mind control, but Hama just loves getting stuck in other dimensions. Speaking of Larry Hama, if there's one thing we know about Larry Hama, other than his love of getting stuck in other dimensions, it's his love of delightful goddamn dialogue. So the kids are trying to make popcorn, it's not going great. Chambers says, in a confusingly pseudo-British fashion, Bloody H-E double hockey sticks. The blinkin' rare bit nuker is defunct. How do I resuscitate this bag of popcorn-like substance? Could you rip this bag open for me, Monet, while I try to find a frying pan? I'm not doing a thing until my nails dry, much less contribute to this culinary disaster. And Jay, I really appreciate how you, like, anti-tried to do a British accent for Chamber. I recognize the limits to my skills, and I recognize that I'm much, much better at deadpan reading ridiculous phonetic accents than I am at estimating the accents they're actually supposed to be approximating. Well, that's fair. Anyway, Chamber uses his weird nuclear furnace powers and everything explodes, and it's great. This is a genuinely funny comic. But it is movie time. Uh, Skin remembers at this point that, wait a minute, Jubilee's too young for R-rated movies, and so, like, he wraps his stretchy fingers around her face, much to her objection. So this does date Generation X as almost exactly our age, because this came out in 1998. I would have been 16. Yeah, okay, yeah, not quite old enough to see an R-rated movie, I suppose Uh so. So we'd be on the younger edge of the team, because that's the thing, it's so easy to forget. Jubilee is the character with by far the most seniority. She's been in way more comics before Gen X started, but she is actually the youngest member of the team. They mentioned the prospect of, of, of her getting nightmares from these, and someone, of course, brings up terminal dream syndrome, where if you die in a dream, you die in real life. 
And sure enough, the movies give Jubilee nightmares, and they're full of horror movie versions of various ex-villains killing all of her friends around her, with her being terrified that if they kill her too, she'll never wake up. So we have Bastion as Mrs. Bates from Psycho, we have Sabretooth as Freddy Krueger from Nightmare on Elm Street, Omega Red as Michael Myers from Halloween, M-Plate as Leatherface from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> Omega Red. Omega freaking Red. And we won't go into great detail here, but I do want to call out that the murders are all off-panel, but they are, like, shockingly gruesome. Like, Husk is killed in the shower by Bastion, uh, by a bomb, not a knife, it's a whole thing. But, like, we just see a close-up of her grip sliding down the shower curtain and her hand going limp as she then lands, like, dead-eyed in a pool of blood just a close-up on her face. And later on, we see an axe embedded in Penance's head in sort of a foreground shadow as Jubilee looks on in horror. Like, this is a visually very scary comic for something so silly. And finally, Jubilee wakes up surrounded by her concerned friends, whom she discovers were all about to put on scary masks to freak her out, because, you know, teenagers. Right? So yes, it's very silly, but then, like, some of the art kind of has stuck with me, and I think about it, and I I shudder some. It's a weird issue, in part because it's a fill-in at an extremely awkward point, but in part because... Yeah, the the tonal, I'm not going to say mismatch, but um, juxtaposition is odd. It's cute. It's cute in a very Excalibur fill-in way. Right, but with more, you know, horrible teenager murder. Yeah, well. Anyway, let's go from that back to something a little more central to the plot, sort of. Kinda? Uh, yeah, in Gen X 42, she came from the stars. This is written by Larry Hama, penciled by Terry Dodson, inked by Rachel Dodson, colored by Felix Serrano, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. Hey, it's Terry and Rachel Dodson. I really like them in the 90s. Some of their later stuff I'm less big on, but their work is so fun here. It's a really good fit for this book. I especially like their take on Jubilee's almost Wolverine-esque hair that she has created by putting a bunch of barrettes into it. Yes. They're also good at making it clear which character is Emma Frost and which character is Husk, which a lot of artists fail to do. It's like you have two blonde women and they just look the same. They shouldn't! One is like twice the age of the other. And they have entirely different body language and entirely different senses of style and so on and so forth ad infinitum. It's, yeah, that's that's bad when it happens. So the trouble with being a reformed supervillain, as Emma Frost is, is that you're going to have a ton of old enemies coming after you for revenge, and that's what this arc is about. But first, Generation X blows off some steam playing miniature golf. And, like, I love how bizarrely, intensely kind of proto-normcore their lives are. Like, you get the feeling that Sean is totally earnest in all of this, and Emma is dead convinced that they are doing bedroom roleplay as a passive-aggressive straight couple. (laughs) That is an amazing take on that, and you are not wrong. And that really does just remind me how much I love the Generation X version of Emma Frost. So many people talk about how she only got interesting in Grant Morrison's new X-Men run years later. I completely disagree. Don't get me wrong, Grant Morrison did a phenomenal Emma Frost in new X-Men. But this version of Emma is a wonderful character. She's so much fun. Like, she's just such a jerk all the time, but in a really endearing way. And, like, she's got genuine emotion underneath, and she really cares about people. Gen X has had a few different writers. I really like the way all of them write Emma. So this issue also contains a side plot about Betty and Veronica of, of you know, Riverdale and Archie Comics uh, hitting on Chamber, which I'm not going to go into except to say that they are both playing miniature golf on rollerblades, which is extraordinarily hardcore for a very specific value of the term. 
Okay, I want to go into one part at least. So one of the things I don't like about the Dodson's later work is it tends to be very cheesecakey for women. Like they're sort of ultra sexy and ultra flirty looking, which fits sometimes. But like if you do it for everybody, it doesn't work. For these characters, it does. They're so over the top the way they're flirting with Jono. Like, there's this one panel where one of them is bent fully 90 degrees butt first toward him as she picks up the golf ball. Like, she's presenting like a mandrel! You know part of the point of that gag is the original character was wearing a blue leotard. I mean, I don't know, maybe this character's wearing blue underwear and it still works. Uh, Listeners, we are referring to one of the greatest Mystery Science Theater 3000 episodes of all time, Space Mutiny. Look it up, it's quite the thing. Alas, this miniature golf course is not set up for railing hills, so we're going to return to Generation X here. And Emma is somehow cheating at miniature golf using telepathy, which... I guess is once again Hama mixing up telepathy and telekinesis, but I like the idea that she's like somehow telepathically telling the little golf balls where to go. If you recall that one episode of Gravity Falls involving the various little gnomes and stuff in the golf course that make everything work, maybe that's what's going on. Oh Jesus, that was a really surprisingly unsettling episode. It really was. Not as unsettling as the Gen X issue we just covered, but you know, still. This one's pretty unsettling, too, and the unsettling stuff starts with a UFO appearing on the roof of the miniature golf office. This UFO is occupied by Bianca Lineage, a former member of the Hellfire Club, and also her her dwarf friends, Stinky, Warpy, Spiky, Greasy, Brainy, Windy, and Blurry. And and once again, these dwarves used to be insectoid or rept—they were drawn as reptilian before. Here, it claims that they were insectoid. They were called Blatarian roaches. Bianca shapeshifted them because— reasons. Because she's Snow White, and therefore she has to have dwarves. I mean, come on, clearly. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit more about Bianca and, and what exactly her deal is. Um, this is this is all technically going to come up in the next issue, but I'm sticking it here for purposes of more fluid explanation. Now, back in the day, Frost International did a hostile takeover of Laneige Industrial Concept, that being, of course, Bianca's family's company. Bianca responded to this situation by stealing a device that hopped between dimensions that they just happened to have there, with plans to go to another dimension, do some industrial espionage, get cool shit, bring it back, sell it, save her company. Instead, she was trapped in what she describes as a hellish dimension, where she allegedly endured unspeakable torments, but also acquired amazing powers. And we get, like, no details on any of that. It's just this whole, hey, I have this gigantic important backstory— but anyway, miniature golf. Yeah, I did some research because I kept thinking that we should have seen at least some sign of this woman before or after. But no, no, she just appears in this arc. This is the entire, at least on page, life and times of Bianca Lanesh. And as for her amazing powers, we never find out what those were aside from transforming her Blitarian Roach buddies. Because exactly at this point, an event called Psy War occurs in other comics and all of the telepathic powers of everyone in the Marvel Universe, including alien dimension science-derived telepathic powers like Bianca's, are wiped out. Yeah, yeah, so we'll get to that. Uh, we thought about whether we should cover the X-Men issues about the Psy War before this to give context or deal with them later since we just did some X-Men. Honestly, I kind of like it better with none, because you get a sense of just how out of goddamn nowhere this looks in the Generation X arc. Completely agree. Completely agree. Like, it derails everybody's lives, because we have a lot of telepathic-type characters. There's Bianca, there's, of course, Emma Frost, and remember, Chamber doesn't have most of his face. Whenever he speaks to anyone around him, he's technically speaking telepathically. He's a low-level telepath. 
So yeah, and, and Cyborg, for just a little bit of context, is basically Psylocke having a really big fight with the Shadow King. Again, we're going to get to that in another series, but it knocks out telepathy everywhere. And it looks really cool when it does. I love the way the Dodsons, but also Felix Serrano, the colorist, handle this. There is this page of sort of a jagged explosion coming out of the heads of each of them. There's no ink border, so it's just color. And it's color, full color, within that jagged explosion, and everything else around it is red. It just looks so shocking and angry and sudden. And Bianca may be down her powers, but she still wants revenge, and that's it. That's the entire backstory. That is all we ever get about her. Yep. Her name is kind of like Snow White's name, and she made some dwarves for revenge, and and, and here we go. Back on the road, the kids and and their guardians see a car that's been in an accident and, and now has a cop car behind it, and it's driven by none other than Gaia from the Universal Amalgamator, whom we last saw running out of the diner drunk on the concept of her newfound freedom. Okay, wait a minute. She has like a futuristic car, and shortly hereafter we find that she has a really futuristic house. She's got pink hair, futuristic stuff, including a hot ride car. Is she a neutrino? Like the subatomic particle? No, no, like the 50s kids with a flying hot rod from the 80s Ninja Turtles cartoon that I really liked as characters, and one time I had a dream that Zack the Neutrino was my best friend, and then I woke up and he was a fictional character, and I was super sad and I cried a little, but I was too embarrassed to tell anyone about it. Wow, I feel really kind of uncomfortable knowing that. Well, now the internet does too. Anyway, this is Gaia. She's not a neutrino. We actually don't know what the hell her deal is, because Larry Hama just gives us the barest hints of backstory and then just rolls boldly forward. We do know that her powers are partially telepathic, so she blacked out briefly while driving. And both she and Emma try to telepathically whammy Shivatier into leaving her alone. He's, of course, the only acting cop in this town, as far as I can tell. So he's the one who pulled up when after she crashed. Um, but nobody's powers work including Chief Autier's, because it turns out he's also a telepath. Sure, why not? Like telepath telekinetic or just telepath? Is there a distinction? Well, he says he's got the sights, so I'm going to go with telepath. Anyway, in in the spirit of, I guess, former telepath solidarity, he lets Generation X take Gaia back to the Academy. And meanwhile, we get a cameo, because it's a Larry Hama comic, of Albert and LCD briefly sideswiping Bianca's ship. So Albert and LCD, we don't cover the Wolverine solo book, so I don't think we've talked about them very much. I love these characters. Oh, same. They are two robots that were created by Donald Pierce of the Reavers and for a while of the Hellfire Club to take down Wolverine. Donald Pierce is a cyborg, hates mutants a lot, hates Wolverine especially. But Albert is a cyborg that looks just like Wolverine, and he was used as bait to lure Wolverine to a cute little girl named LCD, which is an awesome name for a robot, who was really herself a bomb who was going to blow Wolverine up as soon as he got close. But, like, they resisted their programming and they became recurring characters. They were actually just the main characters of the 2020 iWolverine miniseries back in, well, 2020. They're fun. Why are they here? I don't know. Larry Hama just likes them, and he wanted someone to sideswipe Bianca's ship and send it off course. Sure. Why not? Except it gets sent off course to exactly where it was on course to, so I'm not quite sure what that even accomplishes, aside from a brief cameo from Albert and LCD. I feel like the motto for this Larry Hama run of Generation X should simply be, I don't know, stuff happens. 
And stuff continues to happen in Generation X, number 43, An Eye for an Eye, written, of course, by Larry Hama, penciled by Terry Dodson, inked by Rachel Dodson, colored by Felix Serrano, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comacraft. And we begin back at the Danger Grotto, where Generation X is trying their best to train without telepathy. The training sequence is actually really fun. Banshee and Emma are doing a fight sequence. She, of course, is used to using her telepathy for everything and needs to learn how to not. And there's a wonderful shot of Banshee sort of backhand punching at Emma very surprisingly, with her eyebrows raised and her mouth in a grimace, lightning bolts of shock all around. This is not what I think of when I think of the Dodsons, but I love it. It's almost like a Mike Allred comic or something. Yeah, oh god, that's what I was thinking of when I was looking at specifically the panel of, of Albert and LCD, too. Yeah, yeah, it's very much that style. I also love that Emma wears a white and yellow version of the Generation X training outfit. Like, they all wear red and yellow, but she's Emma. She's going to wear some goddamn white. It's also unzipped very low because she's Emma and she's going to unzip it very low. Still more conservative than what she wore when she trained the Hellions, though. Most things would be. Now, Chamber and Emma collectively managed to derail Sean's carefully planned curriculum by basically being very competent without their powers. And they're... Interrupted, the training session is interrupted by the arrival of Dorian and Weasel, who are there at this time not for any Malfacence, but because they are also apparently the only pizza delivery guys in town. Yeah, they just keep showing up. These, again, racist people who tried to kill a kid. Oh, these goofy guys. And then the spaceship that Bianca and the dwarves are in lands on their car and crushes it. Wacky, wacky, wacky. Again, racist murderers. So the kids and Sean fight the dwarves, and Emma heads to the kitchen and hits Bianca over the head with a frying pan, recapping Sean's principles of fighting without powers all the while, and finally knocking Bianca out with a watermelon. And then Siren calls, and that's the end of the issue. Yeah, Siren, Banshee's daughter. We'll, we'll get to that. Jay, what, what the hell? Snow White from space? Seven dwarves? Like, why? Why did any of that occur? I mean, I like the kids playing miniature golf. I like them doing the training and, you know, outsmarting each other and stuff. And then there's just goddamn space Snow White from another dimension, who used to be Emma's business rival, and turned some bug people into dwarves. For reasons. They might have been lizard people. Oh, well, in that case. Honestly, I'm not sure where else to go with this. Like, I feel like we've explained everything that can be explained in this arc, and ultimately most of it is is just kind of not exactly inexplicable. It's, it's very what it says on the tin, but what it says on the tin is kind of bizarre. It might be like a Dr. Bronner's soap tin. Oh man, so many words describing things we cannot fully understand. I wonder, I mean, I've never read all the text on a Dr. Bronner's uh, soap bottle, so maybe there is something about Bianca Laneige in there and the Blatarians. Weirdly, the entire plot of this arc is in some of the fine print. Well, they should have given Dr. Bronner some credit then. Come on, Marvel. He's not Jack Kirby. Wow! Wow! Damn, Miles! Anyway, that's some Generation X. Um, We hope you found it something? Speaking of you, you've got, got questions. Uh, we're only going to do one of them right now, but uh, an anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, is Ultimate X-Men going to be in the docket when you breach the 2000s, or is it strictly Earth-616 and other mainline titles? So we briefly considered covering Ultimate X-Men, and we decided against it primarily for the reason that we don't like it very much. Okay, so you say that, however, there is a part of Ultimate X-Men I do really enjoy. The later run of Ultimate X-Men, after Ultimatum, when the kids are founding, the survivors, I should say, are founding a new nation, that was a genuinely interesting direction to take X-Men. And that was the thing with the Ultimate Universe. We had these big status quo-shaking events, and they kind of made it so the Ultimate Universe couldn't like look very much like the Marvel Universe, but that meant we got new interesting stuff. Is it really X-Men? I don't know. 
The other main reason, and actually, honestly, the, the real reason that we're probably not covering it, is so the original purpose of the Ultimate Universe was to have a fresh start universe that was separate from all of the deeply ensnared continuity of 616. And it started out that way, and it was briefly that way, and then it got its own deeply ensnared continuity that rapidly became every bit as complex as what it was in, was avoiding, and then the universes crossed over. And basically, what I'm saying here is that we already have one job. <laughs> right. Although, as you say that, I realize you could just as easily be describing our podcast our goal was to make X-Men make sense, and here we are 400-something episodes later, and if a listener were to just jump in right now, I'm not saying they couldn't or shouldn't, but it would be harder. Children who were born around the time we started are now in the fourth grade. Dear God, do you think they've been listening to the show the whole time, like, from the womb? I don't know. Has, has anyone been studying the, the impact of, of Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men on, on children's emotional development? Should they be? Listen, if anybody needs like a thesis, a doctoral thesis or something, just just do that. It's it's more ethical than some stuff that's been done in psychology. Shout out to Phil Zimbardo. Although I found out recently that that study wasn't as conclusive as everyone thought it was. No, it's been repeated with vastly, vastly different results with some of the variables, variables very slightly altered, and it's really fascinating. Huh. So, um, yeah, listeners, if you want something that is uh, that is also interesting and does not involve Snow White, uh, look up Phil Zimbardo's prison study in Stanford and, and the replications thereof later. I don't think there were any Blatarians, but I'm not positive. It's been a while since college. We are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. So let's turn it over to ZZ105. The White Noise Hour, featuring 60 minutes of uninterrupted, artfully arranged electronic feedback, is brought to you by the Carnegie Trust, the Frost Foundation for Equine Neutralization, and by listeners like Abby and Tedua. Pledge at our Cosmic Circle tier and get a free ZZ105 pill organizer. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Dylan Higgins, filling in for Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. Special thanks to Max Carlton for cold open assistance. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and stay completely ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please take a moment to rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, Miles will be out recovering from Comic-Con. Because remember, we record these things early, so we're talking to you from the past. But I will be joined by Dr. Michael Roman to discuss his new book, Queering Wolverine. Queering Wolverine.